I want to say about a thousand things before I start this message, and I'm trying to figure out which ones to say. All right, so I, I intentionally did two messages this year. I, I, I tucked them into the Hebrews study. This one's going to be more obviously connected to the Hebrews study than last week's was. But I put them as bookends on the holiday of Thanksgiving. And so if, if I had one word to describe last week's message, it was thanks. It was the inventory needed by us to be a people who are thankful. But thanksgiving has another dimension to it. And that's the dimension I want to cover this week. It's the giving part. So thanksgiving isn't what it is unless it's got both pieces to it. It's got this buildup of thanks, like a pressure that builds up inside of us that we own some things that we're so thankful for, we're affected by them. But thanksgiving isn't what it is unless there's a giving. Unless something from us is expressing that sense of gratitude. So this is a message about giving. And you'll see why as we get into Hebrews chapter 7 today. But I titled the message, Giving Reorients Our Sense of Greatness. And that word reorients, that's what's been happening in Hebrews. This is a people, remember, going through a difficult time. Going through reasons to, to make some changes in their walk with God. Not good changes, but to walk away. To not consider going on in discipleship and following through hard times and doing difficult things. The word drifting has been used. In Hebrews, the concern of the writer is that these are people who know the Lord, but they're they're drifting, right? So, what what I want us to see today, we're we're going to talk about giving, which means we're going to talk about tithing. We're going to talk about biblical understandings of giving to God, and and that's for many people an uncomfortable subject, and that's a, that's unfortunate, but it's all throughout Scripture. Nobody standing in a pulpit should ever feel the need to apologize that we're going to talk about this subject. And the avoidance of it is a disservice to you in in your attempt to follow Christ. Because the Bible makes a big deal about it. You're going to see why that makes a big deal about it. But I just want everybody to get equally uncomfortable in this moment. We are going to talk about your money. But I, I said it wrong already. Your money? Is it your money? All right, I mean, I, again, it just came out of me naturally because just, you know, we're Americans. We own stuff. Nobody tells us what to do. We elect officials and then we pay taxes and we expect them to do with, with our money what we expect them to do. And that's why we're mad half the time because they don't, right? Okay, that's got nothing to do with tithing. The whole financial world that you and I live in, the one that that gives to organizations and and does charitable donations to groups and people ring bells and we give something to them and all that stuff, nothing to do with tithing, as you're going to see today. Tithing is not charitable giving. But I know we're Americans. So if something comes out of my pocketbook... And goes towards somebody else. I'm the donor. That's not tithing. And you're going to see that as we move through this passage. But I want to to put this in the context of Hebrews. Because this is how it comes up in chapter 7 of Hebrews. The concern in bringing this subject up is about drifting. It's about the things in our lives that create distance between us and God. Your money is related. Let me just say it this way. Dollars are related to drifting. Jesus was concerned about that. He says, you know, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your dollars are attached to your heart. And so where they go, your heart follows and my heart follows. And it could be. That in the age in which we're living in Christianity, there's a massive drift taking place. A massive drift. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it more. There are many folks today who will not be in church. They don't have any intentions of being in church. They've drifted from fellowship. 
You could have been here this morning and you drifted from singing. We did the singing thing. Did you do the singing thing? Did you sing with everything in you? Did your vocal cords borrow from your toenails to sing so loud that you had something to give to God? See, singing is an expression. Being here, watching, that's an expression. You take your time, your energy, something about you is engaged in this moment. But many in the body of Christ have disengaged because they've drifted. I don't know too many people, and you'll see why in the scriptures, who continue to give to God and at the same time drift from him. It almost never happens. What you give and how you give is informing how kept you are and how tightly you are walking with the Lord. So if you're sitting here this morning, let me introduce as much discomfort as possible, and it's the end of 2023 and you really haven't given very much this year then please take this to heart because it is intended one to honor God but secondly the byproduct of honoring God in this way is your own protection from drifting and we've all been hanging out in Hebrews we know the Bible is concerned about believers drifting from God now let me put some weight here, and I did this verse last week. I think it's, it's so appropriate because this disorienting element starts with a lack of thanksgiving. It's, it's the epicenter of drifting. Romans chapter 1, read this to you last week. I'll just review it quickly. Verse 18 through 23 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness... They suppress the truth, right? God has revealed some things, but there are things that we do that suppress that, that hold it down, that keep it from going on display. And whatever God you believe in, this is the God who's declaring scripture. He's not happy about that. That's why that word wrath is there. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Why is it plain? Well, because God has shown it to them and he's not a slacker. He doesn't do a poor job. If God showed you something, you would, and this is God showing you, you wouldn't be walking away going, wait, wait, I, I didn't really see that. Can, can you do a little better job of showing that to me? It is God. He doesn't make mistakes. So if God put himself on display, he adequately did that. And that's available to us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. If you want to find the weight, right? Passages have weight in them when you read them. There's the weight in this passage. There was a, a moment when humanity interacts with the perceptions of God, the awareness that God exists, the things that he's done, his creation that tells a story about himself. Man encountered that and failed to respond to it in these ways, honoring God and giving thanks to him. And then the rails came off of the rest of our story. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Where did that terrible storyline come from well it came in the moments when God revealed himself to humanity and all the ways that God does that and man did not respond by honoring God and giving thanks how important is our response it's pretty important right you we should never be in these moments. Can I, just, can I just tell us, I think one of the things that is contributing to the drift in the church world today is the lack of responsiveness of man. 
Right? We believe in, we're a God-centered church here. We believe in the mover and shaker. The Lord himself sovereignly moves and shakes his universe. That does not mean our responses don't matter. Our response to him matters. The Bible calls forth a response in our lives. So when I don't, in this context, give thanks to God, that lack of response is going to do something to me. Do you get that in this verse? You can only bump into God's revelation so much. And if you don't do anything in response to it, you're going to stand in line with everybody else who's walking to get the next load of futility and darkness and confusion and exchanging things that are super valuable in our world for something cheap and made by man. That's the storyline of humanity. Where did it start? Well, it started when man bumped into God and his revelation and didn't respond to that. The God of the universe designed his world so that we would notice him. Is that like rocket science to anybody? I mean, that's like not all that deep, is it? But you and I get busy, don't we? We do life. A lot of things clamor for our attention. There's a lot of things we're afraid of. There's a lot of things that we really want. And sometimes we cannot have a conversation with God um, for days. We cannot respond to him. We've lost sight of something extremely important. And Thanksgiving, that's why I think this is one of the most important holidays we engage. Because Thanksgiving cannot be done without doing some accounting. Taking into account what God has shown us, who he is, and responding to him. And it's so essential in this passage. I put this in your outline again this week. There's something intrinsically helpful and reorienting about giving thanks. It's an exercise that contains contemplation. That's what we did last week and hopefully all week long. Reflection and awareness, intentionality, consideration and inventory. And valuing things and realizing, this is Keith did. I mean, he just looked around his setting at Thanksgiving, at a Thanksgiving table and just saw the value of what was in that room with him. And his heart overwhelmed with gratitude, right? You got to do a little bit of an accounting to do that. Contemplation, but then celebration. The expression of that value. It's an acknowledgement. It's an appreciation. It's applause. It's affection. Delight. Expression from our hearts. All right, so that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to look at the expression of giving to God. And, and that's where we find ourselves in Hebrews The end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7. The writer of Hebrews is, I want you to catch this as we write that there's strategy here. I kind of love the way the writer of Hebrews writes because he's part attorney, right? He's got a point he's trying to make and then he's going to build an argument behind it to convince us. This is why what I just said really, really matters. So he wants to convince us of something and then he's going to offer some support for that convincing. Here's how that sounds. Hebrews 6 verse 19. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, now remember the context. We've been slow going through this, so there's a little context here. There is this temptation to give up, this temptation to not believe this. There's a losing hope taking place. So the argument of the writer is, no, 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 no. We don't lose hope because we have this anchor that is sure and steadfast. It cannot fail. It's anchored in a place that's not going to fail. The rope's not going to pop. It's not going to become unanchored. It's not going to start drifting us back out at the sea into the waves to be clobbered and killed. That's not going to happen because our anchor went behind the veil into the presence of God. And Jesus has gone there for us as a forerunner because we're going there too. And that's an anchor. It is sure. And you got to believe that. So he wants to convince us to believe this anchor is trustworthy. It's not going to fail. So he's jacking up the value of this anchor is what he's doing. And then he turns around and he says, 
Jesus is this unique high priest. And this, that started our whole trouble in this section, right? Deep teaching and categories we don't understand. But he's this deep high priest. Oh, by the way, he's, he's not a priest like Levi was a priest. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, now at, every, at this point, everybody should have questions, right? What? Melchizedek gets barely mentioned in the Old Testament. But here, he's a clarifying figure. He's going to clarify for us why Jesus is so great. Well, because Melchizedek was a priest and he was great. That's the argument, right? Verse 1. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. All right, now we'll come back to Melchizedek's resume here. I'm just wanting to pick up on one thing, just the giving dimension that is in this passage. Now here's the argument. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. All right, so I'm arguing greatness by pointing out to you that Abraham tithed to this guy. That's how I'm trying to convince you how great he is. This guy is great. I just don't say, hey, Melchizedek, I know you've never heard of him, but he was really great. How do I tell you that he's really great? Because Abraham tithes to him. That's how I know he's great. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. All right, just time frame. This exchange between Abraham and Melchizedek takes place about 600 years before the Levitical priesthood gets established at Mount Sinai. There is no Levi at this moment. There is no heir in the high priest. There is no Levitical priesthood. This is the first mention of a priesthood formally in the Old Testament. But it's 600 years before Levi. And what he's pointing out is 600 years later, another priesthood is going to get established. And we all know about that one. There's a lot of teaching on it. That's Levi's priesthood. But this was given by Abraham to Melchizedek, the priest. This man, verse 6, this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's what Levi was doing. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes 600 years earlier through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right. Why is this being argued? Don't, don't lose sight of where this shows up in the daily spaces of our lives. These people, like us, are needing to be convinced that they have a, a great reason to have hope. You have a great reason to hope. Because of Jesus, who is our great high priest, who has passed into a realm in the heavenlies. And he is forever a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, how do we know that he's great? Well, can I, can I tell you what Abraham did in response to him? Abraham tithed to him. You don't just get told this Melchizedek, man, he was like six foot eight, could bench press 800 pounds. He was an incredible guy. Everybody loved him. He wrote books, blah, 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 blah. He was great. He was great. He was great. How do you know in this story, Abraham thought Melchizedek was great? Because he paid tithes to him. It says it seven times. Seven times we are told about this word tithing in this context. 
So there's something about that activity that this writer in Hebrews wants to convince people there's greatness and there's tithing. These things are related. It's a means of acknowledging greatness. And that's what Abraham did with Melchizedek. So I wrote a quick summary thought in your outline. This section of Hebrews is seeking to get the Hebrews to recognize and benefit from the greatness of Jesus, who is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It does so by recounting the time when Abraham recognizes the greatness of Melchizedek. And note, what did Abraham do in recognition of the priest of God most high? He gave a tithe of all. He didn't write him a letter. He didn't gather his relatives and say thank you, although maybe he did that too. But Hebrews isn't going to write about that. Hebrews is going to choose to write about his reaction to Melchizedek in giving him a tenth of all the spoils of war. Why? Why did he do that? Do you understand we have no reference for that practice before this story in Genesis? Why did Abraham do that? Why did he know to do it? What was he thinking when he did it? Let me just tell you what he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking what we think about when we think about the Levitical priesthood. All right? And quite honestly, I think we have polluted the tithe with a misunderstanding of how to associate it with the Levitical priesthood. He's not thinking Melchizedek comes from the one tribe amongst a dozen tribes who don't have any inheritance in the land and they live off of our support. He's not thinking that, which was true of Levi. But it is not true of Melchizedek. He's thinking something different here. And he's responding like, this is like a reflex. This is what you do in the presence of greatness. You give 10%. Where do we get that number from? I don't know. Why not 20%? Why not really noble 50%? I don't know. But it's 10%. And that 10% is going to stick with it. All the way to get to the Hebrews, that word 10th means 10th. But there's something being responded to here. And that's what I don't want us to miss. And let me give you a little bit of backstory for that. Because this is what goes to Romans chapter 1. You bumped into God and his creation. And how did you respond? By honoring and giving him thanks. That's exactly what Abraham is doing to Melchizedek. And there's a particular way that you do it. There's a way to do things with God. Right? I'm going to just pound on a few drums here this morning. When we come together and sing on Sunday mornings, can I just tell you, that's not an optional exercise. That's not for those people who like to sing. I know it's like, well, I'm never, I, don't, I don't sing well and I don't really like to sing and something about singing I'm not comfortable with. Maybe I'll sing in the shower, but I'm not going to sing publicly. Can, can I just tell you, none of that matters. When you come before God, God commands us to sing. And that can't be something that's simply an external activity, can it? Singing comes from the heart. Right, when you hear, you know, I hear my wife in the other room singing, I know, oh, she's in a good mood, right? Because nobody sings when they're mad, you know? Nobody sings when they're just all, mm, just turning inside out. It's like when, when we recognize things, we sing, we sing about them. God knows that when you sing, it's because you recognize things about me. You believe things about me. You're acknowledging those things to me. You are giving something to me. Of thanks. Right, well, that's what's happening here with money. Right, in the same way, your voice is given by God to be an instrument that says something to God. The money in your bank account is given by God to be given to Him to say something about Him. Do not let your money exist in your life without that definition. Well, how do I say that about your money? Well, because it's true about everything, right? Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Let me give you a little bit of background on this. And we'll move back to the 
tithing verses. Acts 17, verse 24, great moment. Apostle Paul trying to introduce the Athenians to the God who is out there that they can't figure out who he is. They're very confused about him. So this is introduction to the God who exists statement. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. You know what that word Lord means in the Greek? It's the word kurios. It means owner. The owner of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Let's get it right. God is not like us. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Welcome to meeting God. That's who God is. And the consistent refrain of God explaining himself to humanity contains that element. The God who created everything. Everything came from him. Everything is upheld by him. God is maintaining our universe right now. Every moment. Everything belongs to him. And that's the expectation of scripture. So when you bump into Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. Verse six, chapter 66, he says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth, my footstool. And what's the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. For this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In the context there, I would debate whether trembles at my word means trembles at this Bible. Because they didn't have a Bible. But he just described creation. And God spoke the worlds into creation. And everything that exists, exists because God said, exist. And it does. And when you bump into that, you're, now you're in Romans chapter 1, aren't you? You're bumping into God's creation. You just went shoulder to shoulder with God. You just bumped into him. How did you respond to that? Were you humble and trembling at his word? Did you honor him? And give him thanks? Did you look out at his creation and say everything in my world has come from him? God's looking for that. The God of the universe is looking for that recognition. And by the way, I was designed by God to live in that posture. That's what I'm designed to be. I'm not designed... For some self-greatness, I'm designed for a humble posture before the greatness of God so that I may worship him with everything I see in my life. I see from God. I value it. I treasure it. And I honor him. And I give him thanks. And this goes all the way to the end of the book, Revelation 4. Verse 11. Worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power to receive. If he's receiving, guess what else is happening? Somebody's giving it. This is the other side of thanks giving. It is the recognition of glory and honor and power belong to him. And we give it to him. By expressing it, we express it in song. We express it in sacrifice. We express it in serving. We express it with our dollars. We give to God. And why is that? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Now, this is just a smidging. It's just a small amount of Bible passages that are going to highlight, hey, humanity, make sure you get this one thing right. 
creator, creature. Make sure you get that right. Do not elevate yourselves into a role that you're not. Stay in your place. Creator, for whom and by whom everything exists. This is not a small issue because there are going to be moments in my life, like the Hebrews are going through, where I want a refund. I don't like the deal that this turned into. And, and the posture of my heart is either going to be informed by a humble posture of honoring God in thanksgiving, in all things give thanks. Why can I do that? I don't like what's going on right now. I don't like the deal that I got. I don't like what this turned into. I don't like how hard this is. I don't like my losses. Well, okay, Keith, in all things give thanks. Why would, why would I give thanks in a moment like that? Because I, I, I remembered step number one, creator, creature. All things exist by him and for him. So whatever's taking place in my life right now that I might not like, that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is how is this by him and for him? And I have to ask myself that question before I venture into other questions. But, but here is a, a helpful thing for me, and it's a helpful thing for you, and it's a very, very helpful thing for Americans. I need a regular reminder that I am not the owner of my life. I need to be told that often. I need to bump into something that speaks to me and reminds me I am not the owner. There is an owner. There is one who created everything and it all exists for him. He's the owner and I need to somehow acknowledge him. So, so listen, this is where tithing is different than charitable giving. Charitable giving might recognize there's a need over there. That person is in need. Good. Good recognition. Loving, kind, compassionate. Giving to that. But you could do that. Ask Bill Gates. He gives more money to needs of humanity than perhaps anybody else in the history of man has. Does he tithe? No. Because tithing is about humbly recognizing all things came from you and they exist for you. And I give to you because of that being true. That's not charitable giving. That's not a donation. You're not donating something to God. You are giving back to him what is his and humbly recognizing it has always been yours. Because it all exists for you and for your glory. And I need help remembering that. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. In verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. All right, where does that story come from? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 14. All right, so let's just visit that story just for a second to pick up what's going on here with Abraham in this, this moment of his life. Backstory, remember Abraham comes to the promised land in obedience to God to live an appointed life that God has called him to. So immediately, this is a man living under the the rule of God. Abraham, leave Ur the Chaldees and go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm not showing you now. You just go there. And he does. And he obeys. And he goes to this land. And his, and his nephew Lot comes with him. And eventually a war is going to break out in the land that God told him to go to. And his relative Lot is going to be taken captive by these kings. Who have come against the locals there. And so they're fighting a war there. And here Abraham's gotten all caught up in that. And then verse 17. This is the other side of a battle that Abraham wasn't looking for. 
but he got involved with. Because Lot has been taken hostage. And Abraham is nobody to mess with. Abraham travels with a small army, about 300 plus men, who are trained. And he deploys them to go rescue Lot. And he takes these kings out. These kings are conquering the valley. These kings are beating cities, nations. They've gathered all their loot from these different cities that they have trampled one after another. But then they meet Abraham with his 300 men. And I have to believe they had a little more than 300 men. But all Abraham needed was 300 men. Verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, right, one of his neighbors, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. This is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, this is our introduction to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem would, would be from the Jewish word shalom, Jerusalem. It would be the city of Jerusalem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. That's very significant because Melchizedek is just Mel's diner for all we know about, apart from that phrase right there. He's just a dude who lives in the neighborhood. What makes him special is he is priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Don't read past that too quickly. Possessor. The creator blesses you, Abram. I represent God most high over everything. And he is the possessor of everything, Abram. And he blesses you. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's a really quick rendition of this story. But there's some powerful stuff in here. That Melchizedek explains some things that Abram seems to know. How do I know he knew that? Because he gave a tenth of everything in agreement with everything that priest just said to him. Abraham, who had paid for these men, who had trained them. These guys went into battle, went to war. No casualty report is given, but blood was shed. Swords were clanging. Sweat, threats, raised voices, hostility, in the trenches, in foxholes, dirt on faces, people, human beings, fought a battle. They exerted some energy in this. But Melchizedek comes along and explains to Abram, uh, Abram, God delivered your enemies into your hand. God did this. And Abram doesn't for a second pull a man-centered response and say, what do you mean God did this? Do you, know how much, do you know how much it cost me to feed these guys? There's over 300 of them. And, and, and the swords that I had and the training they've had to have so they could fight. D- did you see what happened? They went out and fought. Abram, not for a second, leans into the human peace because there was a human peace, wasn't there? They actually did fight. But he doesn't lean into that at all. He immediately agrees with Melchizedek. You're right. This came from God. And in recognition of it, what does he do in response to recognizing, I just bumped into God? He honors him and gives thanks by giving him 10% of everything. Who taught this guy to do this? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really explain how he knew to do that. 
What the Bible does do is it reinforces the exact same thing he did over and over and over again. So nowhere does the Bible ever correct anybody and say, hey, no, 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 15%, not 10. This is like a mafia movie, you know? He knew in his heart to respond to God. I just bumped into the creator of the universe. He gave me the victory over my enemies. And as a result, I've got all this wealth that I just took from all these kings. 10% back to you, God. Not 50%, not 90%, 10% back to you, God. And Abraham's not the only one who's gonna do this. By the way, before the Levites show up, He's not, he's not like, oh, wait, 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 what did God tell Moses on Mount Sinai? That hasn't happened yet. He's got nothing written down to tell him that, hey, 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 you need to make sure you scoop some of this aside because those Levites, you know, they got to eat. You're going to need to support the Levite ministry. There is no Levite ministry. And from what we can tell here, Melchizedek is by himself. Does he really need 10%? This is not the tribe of Levi we're supporting here, for goodness sake. It's just this guy by himself. I'm arguing with this whole concept, aren't I? It's like, wait, 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 wait. Like 10%? I mean, dude, you're by yourself. I mean, how much can it cost for you to live? Oh, wait, wait. Is this offering about Melchizedek's life? Is it about him eating his next meal? Is, is it about something about him? Is that why Abraham's giving? No. He's giving in recognition to the possessor of heaven and earth. He's giving to him. And Jacob's going to do the same thing. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? So we, we haven't gotten to Levi yet. We're just at Jacob now. We're not to Mount Sinai, Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, right? Jacob's about to go on a big life journey here. Go find a wife. He's going off. He's venturing out of his land. It's going to be some risks, going to be some scary stuff. He could bump into some people. War could break out around him. He knows this. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give, I will give a full tenth to you. Where do you get this idea from? I don't know. His grandfather, at least we know, Abraham, modeled that for him. But what he didn't get it from is from the Old Testament sacrificial system at Mount Sinai. That doesn't exist yet. This hasn't been explained to anybody yet. So if you fast forward 500 years now from Jacob to Levi, you get Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. And God's saying to the Israelites, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Abraham knew that 600 years earlier. Jacob knew that 500 years earlier. It's, it's not that the tithe is some taxation on the nation of Israel so that they could support the ministry of the Levites, although that's how they're going to be told to use it. The tithe was in the heart of man as a recognition. This thing exists from God. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Every breath I take, every time I step on the planet, every ounce of food that I eat, everything I drink, every relationship I have that's sitting around the table because you're actually called upon to dedicate your firstborn. There was a lot of moments where God said, you know what? You guys need to be reminded of something. You're the creature. I'm the creator. I own everything. And everything in your life comes from me. We needed that. They needed that. 
And so you fast forward another thousand years from Levi and you get to Malachi, the prophet at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi 3 verse 7. It says, from the days of your fathers, this is Malachi to the nation, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them, right? That's, that's another word for what the Hebrew writer would call drift. You have drifted from the days of your father. You have drifted. Return to me, God says. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, hmm, how shall we return? And God says, well, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But, but you say, how have we robbed you? I really appreciate this is This is a testimony to dullness, isn't it? Right? When you drift, you lose your sharpness. You lose your sense of self-awareness. They don't even know what, what's the problem here. What are you so steamed up about, Malachi? Settle down. You are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't know what, you know, churches always mess with this passage. You take an offering, you mess with Malachi. I'm not sure what you've been taught, you know, put me to the test, put me to the test. I'm not sure what you do with that. I'd be very careful and how I mess with that phrase. But the consistent thing that the tithe is designed to do is to get me to look away from my wealth and to look to him. That's what it's designed to do. It's, to, it's designed to keep me from thinking the good of my life comes from that pile of stuff I just took from those kings in the valley. And the wealth that I'm going to be able to possess because of that. No, God says, no, put me to the test. And why does he have to tell them that? Because they've stopped looking to him. They're looking somewhere else. And when you begin to drift and look somewhere else, you stop tithing. Because you don't see God ultimately as your source. You see your hard work. You see your education. You see that next promotion. You see that job that you need to get to move to the other side of the planet because it has a dollar figure attached to it that you think is going to give you the life that you need to have in order for you and all your kids to be happy. How many of you guys know that doesn't work often? And God says, put me to the test. Look to me. Trust me. Well, God, how am I going to do that? Well, return to me. Let's start there. You're, you're too far removed from me. You're too much at a distance. You have drifted into a bad space. Return to me. How do I return to you? Start giving to me. All right, listen, I'm just preaching the Bible to you here. I know this messes with you because you're kind of like, yeah, yeah. Is this how the church raises money around here? Uh, no, that would be charitable donations. This is the tithe. It belongs to God. If it's sitting in your bank account, if Malachi were our guest speaker today, he would be saying, you are robbing God. But remember our friend in Hebrews, because he's, he's trying to help us. He's trying to make sure that my hope stays anchored in things that can't fail. 
Consider Jesus, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This whole subject comes up because the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince people, stop looking elsewhere. Stop looking for things that you can do and you can provide in your own life. Look to him, the one who's gone behind the curtain, the one who's an anchor, sure and steadfast. He's so great. Oh, he's great. He's great like the order of Melchizedek. All you Jews who come from a Levitical background, you know how great Levi was. He's unique, but this is a different priesthood and it's greater than Levi's priesthood. How do I know it's greater? Well, because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek in recognition of God most high. That's the argument in this passage. But what it's after is getting me to hope in an anchor that can't be moved. How many of you guys know that, that maybe every time money shows up in my life, I need to be reminded of this? Every time. Not like once a year. Not like paying taxes. Say, oh, end of the year. Have I given this year? Oh, it, can I, I know that's where some folks are. I'm not trying to condemn anybody. But if that's where you are, can I just tell you, you have foregone the benefits of the tithe. The tithe is designed to teach you, you don't own anything. The creator owns it. He's the possessor of heaven and earth and everything in your life, life and breath and everything comes from him. Well, I don't know how I'm going to pay the next bill. You don't understand. Oh, well, good thing you're looking to him then, huh? Because he does. He knows how you're going to pay it. And if your trust is in him, you have a hope that's steadfast and sure and it's not going to move. You're going to be fine. That's what this is trying to teach us. So I, I don't know what you were taught you know, in terms of the tithe, you know, tithes can start feeling like they're, they're some kind of a church tax system or something, or club dues, maybe even better than that, right? Uh, there's club dues around here, 10%. It's like, so, you know, when you hear it from that context and you're an American, you, you just start in all the wrong places to talk about this, all the wrong places. It's like, well, well who came up with that? And, and, and what are y'all doing with this money? Does Abraham have any of these conversations with Melchizedek? Wait, 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 dude. What are you going to do with all this? Can I just tell you, you didn't have that conversation with the Levites. You didn't have that conversation about the tithe because it's not about what they're going to do with it. It's about whose it is. And it belongs to him and you give it to him. Not based on whether you approve of something. That's going to be done to it. You'll live your whole life, by the way, not giving. If that's the doorway to what you give to, your approval, is this a cause that I like? Listen, this is not charitable giving. This is not a donation. It's the tithe. It's uniquely God's. I'll give you a couple of quick thoughts here and we're going to pray. Seth, can you come back up here? Here be concerned. Let me, let me share some concerns about not tithing. First, not tithing contributes to my lack of seeing God's glory, worth, and greatness to be trusted. If I, don't, if I fail to tithe, I fail to give thanks to God. I give to him. Then I'm, I'm going to fail to see God's glory and worth and greatness. Not tithing awakens the likelihood that I will look to something else to be my anchor. Matter of fact, the other anchor is probably the reason why I stopped giving in the first place. I can just shock everybody, this 10% number, it exists in the Bible, it's the only one I can give to you. I can make up another one, but I won't be in the Bible if I do. But for some reason, the average American Christian gives 2.4% of his income. I'm not sure where that number came from. And so I think it's kind of like when God comes along and says, hey, bring the full tithe. I think it's that sense of, hey, I'm going to give a little bit just so I can feel like I've given. No, no, no. God, God said 10%. Abraham knew 10%. And you can make up another number if you want, but I, you can't find it in the Bible. Something about that number before you get to Levi that's given. Let me just say this about 
giving. I'll say this about singing. I'll say this about reading your Bible. I'll say this about gathering. This is a, this is a tough day for gathering. In the body of Christ in America, less and less and less people are gathering together on a regular basis. Every once in a while, yes. And giving is done that way too. Every once in a while, I'll give. Listen, there are certain things God has made essential for our souls. Not optional, essential. So if you're a Christian, I would say reading your Bible is essential. It's not optional. Oh, if I get to it, no! You're going to make me panic, and everybody who's trying to care for your soul is going to panic in that moment. Well, you know, if I can, no! Reading and knowing God is essential. Prayer is essential. A conversation rich in meaning from the depths of your being, talking to the living God, is essential. It's not optional. I know we're all busy. It's not optional. Gathering with the body of Christ, not optional. Not like you can arrive on Sunday morning and say, I don't know if I'm going this Sunday. It's not optional. Dude, the Hebrews are going to have to listen to that argument in a few chapters from now. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Why? Because you need an anchor. And you need to be convinced you're going to walk away from this. That's the tone of Hebrews. Warning after warning after warning. Let us pay much more careful attention lest we drift. I got to do something in that statement, don't I? Giving, not optional, is a response to the owner of the universe, to the air that he owns, that I get to breathe, to the food that I get to eat and enjoy because he installed taste buds for me to be able to enjoy it. And creativity given to my wife to make things taste incredible. I thank my wife, but that's from God. All these are from God. And to fail to bump into God and honor him and give thanks is going to send you into futility and darkness. This is not a small thing. Do not pollute the tithe with ideas from the Levitical priesthood. That's how the tithe was used. It is not the origin of the tithe. It's not a taxation thing that, that got broken out at Mount Sinai so that those of you who got to inherit land can pay for those who didn't. That's not where the tithe comes from. It's not charitable giving or a donation that you get to evaluate when the guy comes up here to take the offering on Sunday morning. Or, you know, or is any of this going to orphan care? Uh, is this going to help you know, people in the social structures of our, our nation who are undergoing poverty and difficulty? Is this going to maybe drill wells of water for people who don't have any water and they're, they're starving to death on the other side of the world? Hey, is that what this is doing? No, no, then I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not giving this week. That's not the tithe. You don't evaluate things in the tithe. You respond to God in the tithe. God, no matter what happens with this money, this is about you. And everything in my life coming from you. That's the tithe. And, and by the way, if you read even in Leviticus and you read Abraham, you understand Abraham's not giving to God as some means of atonement. There's no atonement going on here. He doesn't meet Melchizedek and say, hey, 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 I just need to get right with God. What's it going to take? 10%? 10%? I just, want, I just want to feel right with God. I just, I just want to be accepted by God. No, no, that's the atonement makes you right with God. And that's a sacrificial animal, a lamb whose blood is shed and the guilt of your sin laid upon him. That is not the tithe. You, you don't bribe God with the tithe. You don't get it in his good graces with the tithe. But your soul needs the tithe. I hope I've convinced you of that. No matter what your background was in this area. So let me just, let me have us all stand up and let's pray together.
It's not a message for the wealthy. It's not a message for those who have good careers. Cutting grass, 15 years old. God provides something in your life. It came from him. Be wise for you to learn that early in your life and not drift. Making tons of money this past year, making a little bit. You know, 10% works, doesn't it? Because it's 10% of whatever. (laughs) So in God's plan, it's just 10% of whatever he brought to you. It doesn't need to be something else. As a matter of fact, if you make it something else, it's not the tithe anymore. 10% means 10th. Now, you're free to give to other things. You're free to give beyond that. And that's a generosity in the heart that God gives. But the tithe is designed to recognize the owner of the universe and his worth. And it's also designed to keep me from drifting into dependency upon something else beside him. And money will do that to you like nothing else. So I'm going to pray for us. Let me ask you a couple of questions. First, do I feel any conviction about my giving? Whether you're watching online, whether you're here with us today, do you feel any sense of conviction about your giving? What your practice is? Matter of fact, where did I get my ideas about my current practice of giving? Where did, where did those ideas come from? How did I create that? Why am I practicing it that way? And can you consider with me the design by God to acknowledge him in worship the same way singing is not optional, knowing God is not optional, giving is not optional. It's needed by our soul and it glorifies God in a unique way. It's honoring and thanking him as the source of all things. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a helpful moment for us to be on the tail end of a Thanksgiving week. Because Lord, most of us did like what Keith described earlier. We sat around a table the most valuable things in our life. We sat in comfortable homes. We drove a nice car to that place. We ate wonderful food. To the full, we ate too much. (laughs) And we've been living off leftovers ever since. Where did all that come from? Lord, it all came from you. You were intentional. You were thoughtful. You were creative. You went before us. You care about us. You want things for our lives. And Lord, it's all yours, Lord. There was nothing here before you. You spoke. And your word created everything and it sustains everything. And Lord, we want to be those who are humble and who tremble at your word. We want to be those, Lord, when we bump into your creation and your intentionality and your thoughtfulness toward us. We honor you and we give you thanks. And Lord, one of the ways, an important way that we do that is to tithe to give to you in recognition that you, O Lord, are the possessor of heaven and earth and everything we have is from you. Lord, we want to be a people who put you to the test in that way. That if we were to honor you before anything else, you would make sure the needs of our lives are met and the provision that we need will come to us. So God, whether this morning this message is being heard by a a young couple 
just got married. A widow who's on the other side of being married. Single moms here, single people here. The 14-year-old who just got their first job. Lord, no matter what, if, if there are dollars coming into our lives, drift will come right after those dollars. Would you guard us, Lord, by turning our attention to you. When you put dollars in our lives, God, may we give thanks to you by giving back to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Bless you guys who are watching online. Hey, if you're a guest with us today, we're going to try and meet. Some of us are going to run over to the bookstore and get a chance to meet you for the first time. So give us a moment. We'll tell you hello just afterwards. If you need some prayer, please come find our prayer team members who want to stand with you and believe some things with you and trust God with you.